This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh, we're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation, strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. The footsteps of the guards seemed to echo in Alexander Campbell's mind, but he was trying to concentrate on prayer. A fistful of wet dirt in one hand, the other counted rosary beads, a bit of heaven and a bit of earth. And just as his final amen escaped his lips, they arrived. Campbell stood to face the men sent to take him to his death. But before they could shackle his wrists, he slammed his muddy hand against the cell wall. And issued them a warning. That mark of mine will never be wiped out. It will remain forever to shame the county for hanging an innocent man. It was June 21st, 1877, in Mock Chunk, Pennsylvania. Campbell was being put to death as a suspected member of the violent secret society, the Molly Maguires. As he and the guards exited the jail, he saw a living nightmare. A tall scaffolding stood before him with four nooses swinging in the breeze. The crowd seemed to stretch to the horizon. They were miners, wives, and children. Nobody spoke a word. Their silence was in honor of those about to die. For Alexander Campbell, the walk from the Carbon County Prison to the gallows was the first time he'd seen the sun in weeks. He felt every ray as it warmed his skin, and he paid attention because he knew the sensation wouldn't last. And it didn't. 
But today, you can still find a muddy handprint on the wall of Campbell's cell. Try as anyone might, they can't seem to erase the curse of the Molly Maguires. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on the Molly Maguires, a secret society of farmers from the west coast of Ireland. Their origins can be traced back to the early 19th century. This week, we'll discuss what little we know about the Molly Maguires, their origins, culture, and their bloody pursuit of justice for working families. Then we'll track their spread to America, where in the 1870s, they famously became intertwined with violent uprisings in the coal mining towns of Pennsylvania. Next week, we'll take a more in-depth look at the American Molly Maguires and how they came to be feared in Pennsylvania's coal region. We'll explore their complicated relationship with the area's trade unions that culminated in an infamous murder trial. And we'll examine the coverage that made them infamous. The Molly Maguires may not be the most expansive underground society we'll cover on this show, but they could be the most secret. According to historian Kevin Kenny, left virtually no evidence for us to make heads or tails of their culture, beliefs, and practices. Almost everything we know about them comes from a small handful of sources. In October 1873, a detective named James McParlin was tasked with reporting on the origin of the Molly Maguire Society in Ireland. What he found was illuminating and serves as the foundation for most of what we know today. So let's travel back to where he believed the group originated, the rural countryside of Ireland in Ulster County, sometime around 1730, home to something known as the White Boy Movement. Contrary to modern connotations, White Boy here has nothing to do with race. Instead, it refers to a secret society formed in the hills of rural Ireland. They got their name from the White Smocks members' war when they conducted their violent raids. In essence, the white boys were a political movement of peasants with an agenda to take down the man. The man being landlords and the church. Their society consisted of blue-collar Irishmen who practiced subsistence farming, which means they cultivated their land, grew crops, and raised cattle to feed their families. In times of surplus, they may have sold to their local community, but trade and profit were never their goals. They were committed to growing enough food to eat for one more day, one more month, one more year. In addition to being subsistence farmers, most were tenants, meaning they rented land. And typically, a section of the leased properties was shared between landlord and tenant, common land. These farmers also paid tithes to the Anglican church. The tithe was a sort of religious tax. Every year, the church would take either 10% of a farmer's profits or 10% of whatever they produced. Why? Nobody seemed to ask too many questions. 
For whatever reason, pasture land was exempt from these tithes. So when farmers caught onto that loophole, they took advantage. Beginning around 1730, cattle farming boomed. As it did, Irish landlords began adding enclosures on their property as a way to contain their livestock. Oftentimes, those fences were placed around common land, meaning they restricted access for tenants, which made tenant farmers livid. You can think of it like this. You rent a room in a two-bedroom apartment, say, in New York. That rent costs $1,000 a month. Your roommate owns the apartment. As part of your rent, you're given a private bedroom, but also access to a shared common space, a small kitchen and living room. You may not be happy about the $1,000 a month, but you understand that it's just the price of living in one of the world's most expensive cities. Now imagine you wake up one day and your roommate has built a wall that blocks all access to the kitchen and the living room. And when the first of the month comes, they still expect you to pay $1,000. Nowadays, we have laws to protect renters' rights. But in 18th century Ireland, that wasn't the case. The system wasn't set up to support the lower class. So if they wanted access to common land, they needed to take action into their own hands. Which is why the White Boy Secret Society was formed. At the beginning of their operation, White Boy Resistance manifested as passive acts of vandalization. They would level fences or fill in ditches that separated common and tenant land. As they became more organized, they started to insist that all other farmers boycott paying rent and tithes. They also demanded that all vacant farmland remain empty, without a tenant, until real change occurred. The first step was to hit landlords in their wallets. The next, violence. They ran through fields armed with weapons, breaking the legs of cattle that belonged to their oppressors. They appeared in public with guns and horns, arranged in militant formations, marching the streets. They wanted to intimidate. And if those demonstrations weren't strong enough, the white boys erected gallows, built coffins, and dug graves into public roads, omens of the fate that awaited anyone who defied their demands. Soon, their violence reached more than authorities. It entered civilian homes all across Ireland. Keeping the windows of your home lit became a sign of support for the white boy movement. Unlit houses became subject to their raids. Secret Society members stole guns and money from non-supporters in order to help forward their cause. Soon, white boyism became a term in Ireland for any violence that might be connected to any secret society. And the white boys were quickly joined by other agrarian underground organizations, like the Ribbon Men. For our purposes, the differences between Ribbon Men and white boys aren't significant. In fact, both were named after their ensembles. Ribbon Men comes from the green ribbons they wore as symbols of their membership. The most significant distinction was that ribbon men were mostly secular or Roman Catholic, while the white boys were mostly Anglican. Ribbon men were also slightly more urban and they opposed British rule in Northern Ireland. In addition to their antagonistic actions against landlords, the ribbon men clashed with another Irish secret society named the Orange Order. The fighting was due to religious and nationalist differences that were also tied up in tithes. The Orange Order was allegiant to British and thus Protestant rule. Most of the violence happened between the Ribbon Men and Orange Order. Non-members were largely left out of their feuds. 
But unintended casualties started to pile up as more Irish secret societies cropped up over the years. The common thread between these organizations seems contrary to our understanding of other secret societies. Their mission wasn't some secret plan with unknowable goals. No, they made their agendas crystal clear to the authorities and to the public. At the end of the day, each one essentially acted as an illegal, underground, semi-militarized labor union. And when the Molly Maguires appeared sometime in the early 19th century, they were no different. Except that, arguably, they were the bloodiest of all. Coming up, the Molly Maguires' involvement in the Sheep Wars. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. Like its predecessors, the Molly Maguires were formed amidst the fiery unrest of working-class farmers in rural Ireland sometime in the early 19th century. Rents were too high, church tithes were taking food from their families, and their acreage was slowly dwindling as landlords enclosed common land to raise cattle. Agrarian workers began organizing and fighting back. It wasn't long before passive demonstrations turned violent. But before we examine the actions of the Molly Maguires, let's try to get a sense of their culture. And as we do, we need to mention something. Much of the evidence we have for the Molly Maguires comes from other secret societies, like the White Boys. Fortunately, historians are confident in the similarities between these organizations. So we can take what we do know about groups like the White Boys to inform what we can't know about the Molly Maguires. The origins of the Molly Maguires can be traced back to the turn of the 19th century, but an exact date isn't known. They were likely founded by a group of men in or around County Donegal. Donegal was a rural county filled with Gaelic countrymen who spoke a dying language, Irish. As Britain's presence in their country spread, Irish was discouraged from being taught in classrooms and replaced by English. When the Molly Maguires formed, Irish was becoming the minority tongue in the country, but the struggle to keep the language alive likely cemented bonds. Not only were the Mollies fighting for their rights, they were a stronghold for the traditions of their motherland. The feminine nature of the name Molly Maguires also reflects this idea of a motherland. It's rooted in something perhaps unexpected, drag. Many Irish secret societies used the same mythical character as a symbolic figurehead. Her name was Sive Alta, which roughly translates to ghostly Sally. And we have reason to believe the Mollies considered her their figurative queen. 
It was, and is, common for Irish songs and poetry to personify Ireland as a woman and its citizens as her children. Saivalta was likely no more than that, the spirit of Ireland. In broader tradition, Ireland was sometimes represented as a beautiful young woman, calling to mind the stunning panoramas of the Irish countryside and the happy-go-lucky nature of its people. In others, she was a fatigued old maid, representative of a much different reality, the unending struggle of the country's working class. Queen Sive was a character created in the image of that unsanitized depiction of their country. Former White Boys member Darby Brown described her as a distressed, harmless old woman, blind of one eye, who lives at the foot of the mountains. Historian Kevin Kenny uses that imagery to explain their alias. He wrote, The most plausible explanation of the name Molly Maguires is that the men who engaged in the violence disguised themselves as women. They were generally stout, active young men. Sometimes they wore crepe over their countenances. Sometimes they smeared themselves in the most fantastic manner with burnt cork about their eyes, mouths, and cheeks. So even though the name Molly Maguires has no etymological roots in Saive Alta, it was undoubtedly chosen with her image in mind. One might think that the Molly's choice to costume themselves as women was a tactic to hide their identities from authorities, but scholars believe otherwise. It probably stemmed from the folk theatrical tradition, and like modern drag, it was meant to embolden them, to awaken the rebellious spirit within. But passion and rage without structure can cripple progress. Few battles and no wars had ever been won with brute force and will alone. Strategies and systems needed to be in place. After all, the Mollies were Davids fighting a Goliath, the system. To get a sense of the structure of the Molly Maguires and the type of vows they took, let's examine an oath found in the possession of a white boy in April 1762. I do hereby solemnly and sincerely swear that I will not make known any secret now given me, or hereafter may be given, to anyone in the world, except a sworn person belonging to the society. Furthermore, I swear that I will be ready at an hour's warning, if possible, by being properly summoned by any of the officers, sergeants, and corporals belonging to my company. I swear that I will not wrong any of the company that I belong to, to the value of one shilling, nor suffer it to be done by others. Furthermore, I swear that I will not make known, in any shape whatsoever, to any person that does not belong to us, the name or names of any of our fraternity, and that we will be loyal one to another, as in our power lies." Although that was a white boy's oath, historians believe that the Molly Maguires required something very similar of their initiates. And those who refused the vow, the Mollies threatened to bury alive. But this oath reveals the most important value of their organization, allegiance to each other. That's where their power lay. In other words, united they stood, divided they fell. The Molly Maguires stayed true to those tenants, which is one of the reasons why we know so little about them. In addition to secrecy, the Mollies also embodied the hierarchy and structure implied by their oaths. Their acts of political disobedience were focused and always appeared premeditated. 
Whispers of Molly Maguire's activity began sometime around 1850 in Western Ireland, and they started with bloodletting. Under the cover of night, they targeted large-scale sheep farmers and their flocks. Between 1857 and 1863, several thousand sheep were reportedly massacred. Some had their ribs broken. Others had their testicles tied together to stop them from breeding. Still others were decapitated. Carcasses of dead sheep and heaps of wool were found scattered across the land. Eventually, these murders extended to humans as well. Sometime around April 8, 1861, a steward to the wealthy landowner John George Adair was killed during one of these sheep slaughters. In response, Adair evicted over 200 Irish-speaking tenants from their houses. And if that wasn't enough, he either removed the roofs from their former houses or leveled them entirely. Nobody would be allowed even temporary shelter on his land anymore. It was part of what became known as the Sheep Wars. In total, 11,602 acres were entirely cleared of inhabitants. It was a performance of power. A message to the Molly Maguires and similar societies. Know your place and never step out of line again. But Adair's actions affected far more than the Mollies. They impacted their families and those without connections to any secret society. Innocent bystanders. The same men and women whose rights the Mollies were fighting for were now stripped of their livelihoods. In 1861, 244 people were left without a place to rest their heads or food to fill their stomachs. Adair's actions didn't stop the Molly Maguires. In fact, it likely fueled them even further. They continued killing animals, but moved on to assassinating wealthy landowners and their representatives, Adair's peers. Some Mollies were so emboldened that they extended their animosity beyond the landlords, the government, and the church. They began threatening any merchant whose prices they deemed unfair. And as the number of crimes increased, so did their membership. Law officials couldn't keep up. What's interesting is that despite the various signs and signals that Irish secret societies used to identify themselves, smocks, ribbons, drag, they were all generally lumped together as one and the same by authorities. So the Mali's activities were likely blamed on, or even documented as, the actions of earlier societies, like the white boys and the ribbon men. And that's why it's difficult for us to speak about them with much specificity, and why, when the government enacted laws aimed at combating secret societies, members were hard to catch. So what proof, then, do we have that the Molly Maguires even existed? Well, in 1845, an anonymous letter was published in the Freeman's Journal, attributed by some to a man named Philip O'Reilly. It contained a fictional return address. McGuire's Grove in the parish of Clune County, Leitrim, and was mailed by one Molly McGuire. The letter was called The Address of Molly McGuire to Her Children. Inside were 12 rules, dictated by Molly, that all other Mollies must abide by. So, if you wanted to be a Molly McGuire, your requirements included never paying a landlord more than their fair share, always refusing to pay rent until the harvest comes, and never allowing yourself to be evicted until two years have passed without a payment. 
which seems in line with our understanding of the ethos of the Molly Maguires, but the rules take an unexpected turn. You should cherish good landlords and agents. You should never take arms against any individual. You should avoid traveling by night and avoid interacting with police or military because they are only doing what they cannot help. You also should never discriminate against anyone for their religious beliefs and you should only judge a person based on their actions. The rules end simply and ominously. You should forgive and forget where prudent, but watch for the time to come. Watch for the time to come. That phrase can be interpreted in too many ways for us to cover here, but if we look at the 12 rules as a whole, what's striking is that they seem to paint a much different picture of the Molly Maguires than you might expect. There's no call to arms other than forms of passive protest. What about sheep slaughtering? What about marching through the streets with guns? What about the assassinations? Maybe the violence attributed to the Molly Maguires was perpetrated by other secret societies. Maybe they were a peaceful group that got caught up in other organizations' bad publicity. Or maybe the letter wasn't written by the Molly Maguires at all. For all we know, it was penned by a non-member to try and pacify the group, to convince the Mollies there was a better, more amicable path forward. We can't unfortunately draw a conclusion from the limited evidence that we have. We can only dive deeper and travel further down the timeline to try and make sense of their secrecy. Luckily for us, a man named Patrick Tully confirmed the existence of the Molly Maguires in Ireland when he gave a confession on March 18, 1878. So we can confidently say they existed. But by the time that confession was given, Tully was an ocean away from Western Ireland in America. While our information on the Molly Maguires in Ireland is limited, we know that three confirmed members emigrated to America between the years 1846 and 1864, Patrick Tully, Patrick Hester, and Thomas Munley. The alleged appearance of the Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania shortly thereafter tells us one thing. The American Molly Maguires had no problem with taking up arms. Coming up, a war erupts in the coal region of Pennsylvania. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. The Molly Maguires of 19th century Ireland were associated with brutishness, violence, and vandalism, despite an anonymous letter that seemed to suggest that the group's ethos was much more subdued. 
Then, in the 1870s, rumors of the Molly Maguires started appearing in the mining regions of Pennsylvania. The area was rich in anthracite, a pure carbon coal that burns without much flame or smoke. The abundance of anthracite mines meant an abundance of mining jobs. And since those jobs went primarily to immigrants, Pennsylvania seemingly became a stronghold for Irish-American Molly Maguires. Fortunately, documentation of Mali activity in America was much more thorough than that in the motherland. As for evidence that directly links the American Mali Maguires to the Mali Maguires of Ireland, in short, there really isn't any. As we mentioned, we know members of the Irish organization emigrated prior to the beginnings of the American Mali Maguires, sometime around 1873. But other than that correlation, we don't have anything that proves that the Irish Molly Maguires did anything more than inspire their American counterparts. This missing link has sparked some debate between historians and conspiracy theorists. But in many ways, it doesn't matter. Such a connection could prove the American Molly Maguires' authenticity, and it would be basing that authenticity on a known, trackable lineage. But even with our limited knowledge, we can confidently say that the Molly Maguires didn't care about bloodlines, initiations, or official oaths. You were a Molly Maguire so long as you upheld their values, fought for your collective rights, and protected your own. And the American Molly Maguires, true descendants or not, did just that. To understand the American Molly Maguires, it's important to get an understanding of the land where they first took root. The circumstances that gave rise to their power mirror those of Ireland. Prior to the 18th century, the area was occupied by the Lenape Native American tribe. Around the mid-1700s, European settlers arrived in the area. They called it St. Anthony's Wilderness. The name is indicative of the untamed, seemingly untouched nature of the area. Part of its appeal was its untapped resources, like anthracite coal. In 1749, a handful of proprietors paid the Lenape $500, the equivalent of roughly $20,000 today, for a title to land that included the majority of the mines. By 1778, the Lenape were driven from the region entirely, and competition amongst miners really began. The coal fields of Pennsylvania spanned seven different counties and covered 484 square miles. In the northern region, the coal could be procured with comparative ease. To oversimplify, this was due to the anthracite's position within the earth itself. Large companies flocked to the northern coal fields, most for railroad corporations, who mined coal as both an alternative income stream and to, quite literally, fuel their operations. The southern regions were mined by much smaller operations. By 1870, there were 160 unique minor businesses in the south, compared to the 25 major corporations in the north. Ironically, those 25 corporations would have been better equipped to handle the complexity of mining the lower mines. As is often the case, their wealth bought them ease. The smaller-scale enterprises were faced with significant challenges. Of course, this disparity also meant that the businesses in the North could afford to pay their employees more. Immigrant workers were typically the ones willing to work for the meager wages in the South. Many of them, of course, Irish. 
The area was defined by a struggle that plagues America even to this day, individual enterprise against corporate dominance, small versus big business, a fair, free, competitive market versus a monopoly. In the early 1870s, one of the 25 companies from the North expanded their operation, the Reading Railroad, run by a man named Franklin B. Gowan. Then in 1873, the American stock market crashed, causing the panic of 1873. As the economy crumbled, blue-collar workers lost their jobs. By 1876, 14% of Americans were unemployed. The only people who weren't feeling the effects of the crash were industry titans like Gowan, who rode around in luxurious cars as people starved. Even after the panic, Gowan purchased tens of thousands of acres in the lower coal regions. Over only a handful of years, the 160 operations in the South became 36. The economy gave him an excuse to hire fewer workers for lower wages. And even if well-paying jobs came into the region, demand was so high, they rarely, if ever, went to immigrants. But in America, the Irish weren't without some form of support. A trade union had been formed in 1868 for mine workers. And its creation was driven by those in the South. So it only makes sense that it was here, in the lower coal fields of Pennsylvania, that the Molly Maguires surfaced. Their stronghold was located in Skullkill County. And before long, kill is exactly what they would do. But it took time before they could make an impact on companies like the Reading Railroad. At the height of the Pennsylvania Molly Maguires, the population of the county was around 120,000 people, roughly 14,000 of whom were Irish immigrants, almost half of the total immigrant population. The earliest American Molly Maguires likely hailed from the counties Mayo and Donegal and spoke Irish. This similarity to the Irish Mollies is sometimes used as evidence to suggest that the society infiltrated America. But as we've said, the significance is negligible. The fact that they were Irish speakers is important because of all the immigrant populations, they would likely be considered different, outsiders, the most other. And that difference gave rise to discrimination. Which came not just from employers, but from their co-workers with all types of backgrounds, even other immigrants. We may never know what words were exchanged, but we do know the repercussions. Assassinations. One of the first crimes attributed to the Molly Maguires was the murder of two Welsh mine superintendents, Morgan Powell and John P. Jones, allegedly because they favored Welsh workers over Irish. And afterward, fighting between the Welsh and the Irish took to the streets in the form of gang warfare. They acted out one of the core values of the Mollies, protect your own. Beatings, petty crime, and murders made for a tumultuous environment in and around Schoolkill County. The Mollies may have been in a new country, but their standing and their struggle were the same as those embodied by their queen, Saive Alta. And the sheer number of single Irish women who became the heads of their households in America was overwhelming. Irish immigrants were forced to band together to support women and their children. Suddenly, fighting for the survival of Queen Scythe became much more literal. The fight to put food on tables had become a fight for workers' rights. 
the American Molly Maguires transformed into an underground miners' coalition. They did what the Irish Mollies had done for farmers, and they did it nearly eight years before any legitimate labor union was formed. In 1868, when the miners formally unionized, the Mollies and the union shared many goals. But they had different visions for how to achieve them. As with all secret organizations, the Mollies had the benefit of not being subject to the laws, the politics, and the red tape of traditional society. They were their own law. The next decade and a half catapulted the Molly Maguires to fame. The term Molly Maguireism became what white boyism had been in Ireland, synonymous with rural labor violence. In practice, they enacted mob rule. Large groups of men armed with shotguns, rifles, and muskets. They attacked, intimidated, and killed those who stood in the way of their vision of justice. Hand-drawn notices were posted for their enemies to see. Pictures of coffins with warnings on them. Be careful or this will be your house. They walked a fine line between vigilantes and murderers, morality and sin. And in the end, during a long and vicious trial, 16 assassinations of public figures would be pinned on the Mollies. It would result in the hanging of 20 of their alleged leaders. Thousands of Irish immigrants gathered to honor them and the service they provided to their community. Most believed they were innocent. Why? Well, there's one theory that could undermine everything we think we know about the American Molly Maguires, that they never actually existed. At least not as they've been portrayed. Some historians believe that American authorities had heard of the Irish Molly Maguires and they were used as a scapegoat for various crimes. When they needed to pin blame on someone or something, the Molly Maguires became a convenient bit of fiction. Which isn't to say that there wasn't organized unrest amongst the Irish in the coal fields of Pennsylvania. That much we know is true. But were the 20 men killed in the late 1870s really leaders of one of the world's most secret criminal organizations? Or were they innocent men hanged for crimes they never committed, killed to cover up the inadequacy of the area police, and to send a message to the real perpetrators, this ends now. Next week, we'll try to get to the bottom of that mystery. We'll take a more in-depth look at the activity and crimes that occurred in the coal fields of Pennsylvania. We'll also explore the trials that sentenced the Mollies' supposed leaders to death. All in an effort to discover what's real and what's not in one of the world's most secret, secret societies. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two as we try to uncover the truth behind the American Molly Maguires. For more information on the Molly Maguires, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Making Sense of the Molly Maguires by Kevin Kenny extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Edmire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 